You're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, division of endocrinology and metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. What is the evolving state of clinical practice guidelines for the management of patients with diabetes? Joining us to discuss practice versus accountability is practicing clinician of family medicine and senior investigator for Health Partners Research Foundation in Minneapolis, Minnesota, Dr. Patrick O'Connor. Dr. O'Connor, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you, Steve. It's great to be with you today. You know, I'm really interested in this topic, but let's explain my opening statement what are you referring to when we talk about practice versus accountability? Well, I think that um, clinical guidelines for diabetes care uh, traditionally include some specification of what the, what the clinical goals should be for glucose control, for blood pressure control, for lipid control, and so forth. And these, uh, the purpose of these guidelines is to uh, suggest to physicians what what the evidence uh, says in terms of uh, where the level of benefit may be for patients in general. More recently, probably in the last 10 years or so, there have been uh, a different set of uh, measures uh, for diabetes care quality related to public reporting of quality and sometimes called accountability measures. And the uh, specification of the, the thresholds and values at which credit is given for high-quality care is uh, what we mean when we talk about accountability or quality measurement goals. And those may or may not be the same thing as in the clinical guideline specifications, and that's uh, an issue that uh, deserves some careful thought. What's the impetus to push away from the one-size-fit-all approach? Well, I think in recent years, the clinical guidelines issued by the American Diabetes Association and by other groups, such as the Institute for Clinical Systems Improvement in Minnesota and others, have reflected the results of recent clinical trials, such as ACCORD and ADVANCE, that have suggested that the benefits for extremely uh, aggressive glucose control and blood pressure control may be variable across different patient subgroups. So that the concept uh, that we need to individualize clinical goals has emerged with a great deal of momentum and force in recent years. We've spoken about these trials before, but just for the listeners, the ACCORD trial was the trial where they looked at elderly type 2 diabetics with a history of uh, heart abnormalities, and they pushed their control down pretty low to close to 6.5, and they saw actually a higher incidence of mortality compared to the group that had a slightly higher A1C. And I think the sub-analysis at this point shows that, you know, f- elderly folks with cardiac abnormalities on insulin may be prone to adverse effects of hypoglycemia. So I think that's where your comment's coming from. Well, let's talk about um, the different subgroup analyses and patient preference and genetic analyses when it comes to designing clinical care guidelines. There's uh, several things that... Uh can be considered when personalizing uh, treatment goals for a person with diabetes. And we're referring here primarily to people with type 2 diabetes. And one thing is, what's the potential benefit to the patient uh, at a specific goal level? And another thing is, what's the patient's preference for treatment? These are both uh, important. And the benefit uh, 
the question of the clinical benefit to a given patient is a very complicated question, and I think that we're entering an era where information from genetic uh, risk factors is beginning to influence our thinking in this regard. It's not quite uh, ready for prime time yet, but my estimate is that within two or three years, there'll be some uh, genetic markers that are available in office practice that could very much influence the emphasis with which we pursue glucose control or blood pressure control in particular subgroups of patients. A very interesting uh, paper that was published in uh, JAMA in 2008 by a team led by uh, uh, Dr. Doria uh, examined the uh, impact of a particular uh, risk factor at a a genetic uh, uh, loci called 9P21. And patients that had a particular configuration at that locus uh, for these patients, the degree of glucose control was strongly related to their subsequent 10-year uh, survival and to their subsequent 10-year incidence of cardiovascular events. There's a very direct link between good glucose control and better survival and less cardiovascular events. In patients that had a different marker at the same locus, there was no relationship between glucose control Uh, cardiovascular events and mortality, so that uh, when this uh, test or others like it become available in clinical practice, uh, they'll distinguish patients for whom, for example, aggressive glucose control is extremely beneficial from those for whom uh, control of other factors such as blood pressure and lipids may be more more beneficial than aggressive control of glucose. Yeah, that's that's a great example. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman. I'm speaking with Dr. Patrick O'Connor. We are discussing the evolving state of clinical practice guidelines for patients with diabetes. Well, let's talk about some of the challenges of personalized approach. There are a lot of challenges, Steve. And, you know, just in terms of the uh, complications of heart attacks and strokes in people with type 2 diabetes, and as you know, heart attacks and strokes are major problems in people that have type 2 diabetes and account for about uh, two-thirds of the uh, of people with a type 2 diabetes uh, die from a heart attack or stroke. So preventing these catastrophic events is a very, very important priority uh, for all of us that take care of these patients. There are many uh, factors that affect cardiovascular risk in, in such patients, and glucose control is one of the factors. Then there's blood pressure, there's cholesterol, there's smoking. We also know that the use of uh, appropriate use of aspirin can reduce risk. So there's right there are five things that are strongly related to uh, cardiovascular risk in, in these patients. And when you're in a primary care setting and you're seeing patients, uh, you know, 20 patients, 25 patients a day, you don't have a lot of time to sort things out. But you need to, when you see the patient, consider how they're doing with respect to all these five cardiovascular risk factors and determine uh, which, if any, need, need particular emphasis and focus that day. So, you know, that's a challenge. And uh, the ones that need the most attention may be related to uh, the patient's age, their degree of comorbidity, their genetic uh, risk profiles. It may also be related to how far one is from the goal compared to the other. So if you have a glucose, you know, an A1C value of 7.3 or 4% in reasonably good shape, and you have a systolic blood pressure of 160, it's pretty clear that the systolic blood pressure is contributing more to the cardiovascular risk in that patient at that time 
than the A1C is and that would deserve more attention. Yep. So all those factors need to be considered when personalizing care. It takes a good history, and it, and it takes the provider and patients working together to uh, determine what's the best therapy and what the goals are. Well, it is a very complicated thing to get it right. And there are some things that can uh, help both subspecialists and primary care physicians in this respect. And the uh, use of electronic medical records opens up new terrain in terms of what I refer to as clinical decision support. So the electronic medical record has the capacity to search through the patient's information base and identify immediately how the patient's doing with respect to the five major cardiovascular risk factors that we listed a moment ago and can go a little further if it's, uh, the data are linked to what you, what you might call a risk engine, like the UK PDS risk engine or the fra- even the Framingham risk engine. You can get a sense uh, that from computations done within the EMR uh, that, that are not very time-consuming to the provider for that reason. Uh, you can get a sense where uh, actions would most effectively reduce cardiovascular or even microvascular risk for a given patient with type 2 diabetes. So going into the room with the patient, you have a sense that what's important today is blood pressure and glucose, or what's for another patient, what's important today is to focus on smoking and cholesterol. That for this patient at this point in time, those are the things where the greatest potential benefit is for that for this patient today. We talk about the importance of patient preference. You know, and sometimes you know a, a negative person would say, "Well, patients don't really know what they want." So, why is it so important? Because if the patient doesn't want to do something. It isn't going to happen. So at least that's my clinical experience. I see. So you have to sort of go where the energy is for the patient. And we spend a lot of our time trying to fully inform and educate our patients that, you know, glucose control is really important, blood pressure control is important, and so forth. But but patients do have their own preferences, and they're based on a lot of uh, factors related to their past histories, the stories of people that they know and their relatives and so forth. And it's very time-consuming to elicit all that information although, you know, useful if you can get it. I think that the clinical decision support systems that we just described before that that are linked to risk engines and can prioritize the benefits from different clinical actions are very uh, useful from the point of view of uh, uh, patient preference in this way, that the doctor can go into the visit knowing where the biomedical benefit resides. It resides in better glucose control or better blood pressure control or whatever it is for this patient for today. And then you can present to the patient two or three treatment options, uh, glucose, blood pressure, smoking, and say to the patient, look, these all have some potential benefit to you. Which of these are you interested in? And you can kind of pick up the patient preference. I think of it, you can pick it up on the back end by presenting the patient with things, all of which have evidence of strong benefit, and letting the patient pick between those things. This type of visit planning tool with the EMR and the link to the risk engine can can sort of corral the conversation a little bit and keep it on things where there's definite benefit to the patient, still have the patient choose the course of action that they want to do. Getting patients involved in their own care and having them put their own issues high on their own priority list is getting them involved and getting their uh, preferences. I'd like to thank our guest, practicing clinician of family medicine and senior investigator for Health Partners Research Foundation in Minneapolis, Minnesota, Dr. Patrick O'Connor. 
Dr. O'Connor, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us on Diabetes Discourse. Thanks a lot, Steve. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. In last week's class, we talked about how diabetes affects the whole person, and we left off with an important question. Are we looking at every part of diabetes? Uh, To help us answer this question, I've invited one of my colleagues as a guest speaker, Dr. Jackie Brennan, who has been practicing endocrinology for over 25 years. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here to discuss a key issue in diabetes whether or not we're looking at the whole picture. As you know, sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. Weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction are also part of the problem. Specifically, I'd like to talk about GLP-1 and how it impacts multiple systems affected by diabetes. Can anyone tell me more about it? Yes, Jamie, go ahead. GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 are critical to glucose control. Exactly. In a glucose-dependent manner, GLP-1 stimulates the beta cells in the pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibits the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. Anyone know what else it does? What about you, Sam? Yeah, doesn't it help control weight by slowing gastric emptying and inducing a feeling of satiety? Yes, and GLP-1 may also play a role in improving beta cell function, a key to slowing diabetes progression. But why is this so important? It's because at diagnosis, type 2 diabetes patients have already lost 50% of beta cell function. Well, isn't impaired GLP-1 physiology also part of the problem in diabetes? Yes, that's a great point. People with type 2 diabetes may have impaired GLP-1 activity and or impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. This could contribute to problems that develop over time. That's why the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. GLP-1 regulates blood sugar in a glucose-dependent manner, may help control weight, and may improve beta cell function. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about the latest treatment available from Novo Nordisk, please visit glp1analog.com.